In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. In college, I once heard a professor talk through the following thought experiment. What would happen if someone responded to the gospel at an evangelistic conference, like a Billy Graham crusade or whatever its modern equivalent is, and then they truly in their heart of hearts repented of their sins and turned to Christ, but then on their way home they changed their mind and never lived their life as a Christian afterwards? What would their eternal destiny be? Thought experiments like this are meant to expose and refine your theological commitments. So if you believe, as this professor did, that it was impossible to lose your salvation, the question forces you to consider how far that commitment really goes. But like many thought experiments, while it may be helpful in sorting through your ideas, I think it directs you to ask the wrong kinds of question. I want to get to the right question, or maybe generously a better question, as we work through our texts this morning, beginning with our Old Testament reading. So Micah was an Old Testament prophet whose ministry likely overlapped with Isaiah's and who was writing to the people of Jerusalem. And in this passage, Micah is painting a picture of an idealized future, how things will be when all things are made right. In this vision of God's future, Mount Zion, where the temple is built, is raised up to be the highest of all the hills. Now that mountain is actually currently surrounded by taller hills, hidden in a kind of valley. So this vision is of the mountain of the Lord coming out of its hidden place and becoming visible to all. It's a metaphorical fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham, that Israel would be blessed and that the world would be blessed through Israel. And in Micah's vision, Zion would become sort of like Mount Sinai, where God's ways were revealed to Israel and giving them the law, except Zion would become the place from which all nations were invited to learn. Micah writes that many nations shall say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of, God of, house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Now, we tend to think about learning in terms of knowledge, like learning the state capitals or learning the mitochondria as the powerhouse of the cell. But what Micah is talking about, and I'd argue scripture typically has in mind when it speaks of learning from God, is not just learning about God, although that's definitely a part of it, but something more akin to learning a trade. So less like a student in a classroom and more like an apprentice under a craftsman. This kind of learning takes place not only by listening and taking in information, the what, but also learning the how. Think about how you might learn how to bake bread, spending hours in the kitchen with a baker, watching them as they work over the dough, able to see and understand when it's ready almost by intuition. Or think of how you would learn woodworking by spending hours with a carpenter in their workshop, watching them make those ever so slight adjustments and how they use their tools, practicing alongside them until you can emulate their craft. It's this kind of learning that transforms the nations in Micah's idealized future, learning the ways and paths, not just the details, but also the methods. Micah's condensed summary of life in the world to come isn't just that the nations will take their weapons and turn them into gardening tools as a one-time action, but that they are doing so because they have learned to walk in God's ways and swords are no longer necessary because they won't learn the ways of war anymore. As I read this, I couldn't help but think about Jesus' words as he weeps over Jerusalem before entering on Palm Sunday. If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace. 
the righteousness of God isn't simply a series of facts that are consented to, but ways and paths that lead to peace. Following God, following his ways, learning from him in the same way that an apprentice walks in the footsteps of their master, this is what would lead to peace. Think of how the reading from Micah ended this morning. We will walk in the name of our God forever and ever. But of course, any honest assessment of our own ways will certainly recognize the gaps between them and the ways that make for peace. So John in his first epistle brings up that disparity several times. In verse 6, he writes that if we say we have fellowship with God while walking in darkness, we're lying. In verse 8, he says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And goes further in verse 10 by saying that if we say we haven't sinned, we also make God a liar. John's presenting some ideas in tension. There's this high standard. God is light. In him there is no darkness. And if we walk in darkness, we're not walking with God. But then he is clear that sinning, deviating from the path, is a certainty. And if you say otherwise, you're deluding yourself. So we, we have to walk in the light, but we certainly won't. Thankfully, John himself provides the solution to the puzzle he set up by saying that if and when we sin, and we confess to God, God is faithful to forgive us. Faithful not based on us, but based on him and his promises. So there we have it, the formula, right? We shouldn't sin, but we will, and God forgives us. We just have to step on and ride the atonement carousel, and everything works out fine and in our favor, right? Well, I think that summary, that takeaway, looks a lot like our opening question about how to win the game and make it into heaven. And I think that's still asking the wrong question. John at least seems less concerned with status than he is with direction. In verse 3, this is chapter 1, John explains that he writes so that his readers may have fellowship, community, with them and with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. He opens his letter by saying that they are declaring not just what they've heard, but also what they've seen with their eyes, looked at and touched with their hands. For John, this isn't only a matter of doctrine, although he has lots to say about doctrine too, but more so the experience of walking with God. And while he preaches the sureness of forgiveness of sins, that no matter what, we have an advocate who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, when he summarizes chapter 1 in the first verses of chapter 2, he says, I'm writing these, thing, these things so that you may not sin. His goal is that they might walk in the light. And so you don't avoid sin by avoiding the darkness. You avoid sin by walking in the light, by walking with God. The Christian life comes from experiencing fellowship with the risen Christ. John, who likely put his hands in the wound of Christ and ate boiled fish with Jesus, has a very tactile experience to go off of. But while we may long for that same tangible encounter with Christ, Jesus assured the disciples and us through them that his ascension would mean that we would receive something greater in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not advocating here for an isolated, individualized, and experience-driven faith where we all just base our own spiritual lives off of those thin places where we feel like God is near, as good as those are. I am saying that as helpful as thought experiments are to help us form and refine our theology, the question at the forefront of our minds shouldn't be how to be assured that we will win our celestial court case when we've died. Our justification, the declaration that we are found to be in the right when we stand in front of God, has already been guaranteed to us in Christ's death and resurrection and in our participation in it by faith. 
The question we should be considering instead is what does it look like to sit at God's feet and learn his ways and walk in his paths? We don't confess Christ as Lord because it gets us something. We do it because it's true. And we want to walk in his truth and in his light, living into the reality of his coming kingdom. That learning process, though, isn't always a straight line. And I don't want to present a model of the spiritual life that puts the heavy burden of expected emotional experiences on our shoulders so that we feel guilty if we don't feel a closeness with God, which is why I take great comfort in how the disciples respond to Jesus in our reading from the Gospels. At this point in Luke's Gospel, Jesus had only appeared to those disciples on the road to Emmaus and in the upper room afterwards. But they knew the tomb was empty. They knew something had happened. And yet they didn't quite understand what. So when Jesus shows up, he says to them, peace be with you. And it startles and terrifies them because they think they're seeing a ghost. And then he, he gives them proof. He says, look at me, don't be afraid. And then there's this verse that does so much heavy lifting. While in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering. He said to them, have you anything to eat? Think of the emotional range that takes place here. In their joy, they're disbelieving and still wondering. Scripture gives us a lot of unambiguous declarations of what is true that can guide us to show us how to walk in the ways of the Lord, a sort of north star, a compass heading. But I find such encouragement in the fuzzy, sometimes half-hearted, sometimes full-hearted and only half-brained responses the disciples make all throughout the Gospels, even here after the resurrection. And so whenever the accuser lays at your heart the gap between your ways and God, God's ways, and when even the promise of forgiveness only causes you to weep at your inadequacies, remember how the disciples responded to the resurrected Christ, the internal conflict of joy and disbelief and wonder. We come to Jesus with complications and conflicted emotions, but take heart because the disciples did too. And look at how Jesus responds to it. Jesus' first question, why are you frightened and why do doubts arise in your heart, can be read with two very different tones. A sort of accusation or maybe curiosity. But when you stack all the resurrection accounts next to each other, from Jesus' invitation for Thomas to feel his way into belief instead of disbelief, to Jesus' request here to eat and show the disciples that he was really alive with a real resurrected body, not a ghost, I think it's safe to assume that Jesus' posture in the face of the disciples' internal conflict isn't accusation, but an invitation into further belief. The same invitation that Micah envisioned when teaching would flow from Zion. The invitation to come and taste and see that the Lord is good, that he longs for us to learn and walk in his ways, that he wants the defeat of death not just to win us a spot in heaven, but also to win our souls and lives into a new kind of life. The reality of the resurrection leads us into transformation. And let's not reduce that to a different kind of litmus test, that if you don't prove adequate transformation, you might not really be saved. Instead, hear that as a call and let it beckon you into walking in the ways of God. Just like he did on the road to Emmaus, Jesus explains the scriptures to the, to the disciples. And just like it has always been, the goal is mission. There is no place where the resurrection does not apply, and so all peoples, all nations are invited to walk in God's ways, to learn not the ways of war, but the ways of peace. 
Jesus tells his disciples that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. The invitation to walk in God's ways begins with an initial exposure of sin to the light of truth. And so let's not make the question an either or. Either we're talking about forgiveness of sins or learning righteousness. Because repentance is central to what it means to learn righteousness. It's the starting point. Before you can learn to follow God's ways, you have to unlearn and turn away from the destructive, well-worn paths you've walked before. Sometimes you get to a point where the problems you face seem too large, where the sword seems so necessary that you can't even conceive of beating them into plowshares, where there's war all around you and peace seems like a non-starter. And it's in these moments that you especially have to stop and reassess your assumptions. So when refugees wait in camps fully approved to come to safety but are prevented from doing so from a lack of political will, or when the relationship between law enforcement and the communities they serve is defined so much by mutual fear of the other that any sudden movement is grounds for shooting a 13-year-old boy or a 30-year-old man dealing with mental health crises, we need to say that the train's off the tracks. Something fundamental has gone awry. We need to be ready to weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, and stop and ask big questions about the entire system. Jesus told those who asked about divorce that because of their hardness of hearts, Moses allowed for a certificate of divorce to be given. And I think the number of places where we have allowed hardness of heart to determine our moral vision are too many. As the church, our call is to insist upon and offer the world around us a greater moral imagination, one that says all things are being made new and allow God to demolish our carefully constructed paradigms that insist that violence is a necessary evil. I don't know how to get there. I don't have the answers. And if I did, they'd probably be too much for one sermon. But I will say this. While we do have to acknowledge that we live still in a not yet, and we should be wise to look for and advocate for steps that can be wisely taken, we must never limit ourselves to this world's definitions of possible. We must question the assumed categories that we're given because we've been invited to serve a kingdom that is coming based on the declaration of something that seems at some level entirely irrational. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob came in the flesh, dwelt among us, died for our sins, and was raised from the dead on the third day. And that he calls us to see the hurt of the world and not respond by insisting that sometimes swords are good, but to start to walk in ways that make them seem unnecessary to begin to learn God's ways and his paths. It is inherently risky and dangerous to be wielders of pruning hooks in a world full of spears. And we might be called to give of ourselves even to the point of death, but we must envision, and envision by the power of the Spirit, alternative plausibility structures, different ways of thinking that only make sense when you look at the world through cross-shaped lenses. So I pray that God gives us greater fellowship with each other and with his son to teach us to walk in his ways, so that we might proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So that we in the whole world would come to his mountain and learn to walk in his ways, the ways that make for peace. May we be given a vision of Christ's kingdom that inspires our imaginations and guides our steps to live out our call to be ambassadors for the king of kings. May we beat our swords into, into plowshares because we've stopped to learn the ways of war. 
For all the people walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Amen.